Amen. What an anthem of hope for those who know and love the Lord Jesus. Right now, God leadeth us to Genesis chapter 48, and I would invite you to turn there. Actually, Genesis chapter 47, uh, we're going to dive in near the end of chapter 47 and then work our way through chapter 48 and chapter 49. If you don't have a Bible, there are a lot of them in the seats in front of you, and it's going to be either page 38 or page 41, depending on which copy of God's Word is there. But Genesis chapter 47, and you see the title of the sermon, Lavish Blessings for Ruined Sinners. And the text this morning addresses this question of what does it mean to be blessed by God? And so as we begin, I want to read from where we ended last week, verses 27 and 28 of chapter 47. I want to read from that, and then I'll lead us in prayer as we seek the Lord's help. But hear the word of God, starting in chapter 47 and verse 27. Thus Israel, also known as Jacob, settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And this is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your eternal and true and life-giving words. Please help me now in the preaching of your word and all of us in the hearing of it to rightly understand and to rightly respond in faith to what you declare. Even as the psalmist prayed, O God, save your people, bless your heritage, be their shepherd and carry them forever. All for your glory in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the text I just read there, verses 27 and 28, is really a summary segue of all that has preceded it, leading us into all that is going to follow. And having been told that Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 more years after he and his family relocated there, he then died at the age of 147. And what follows reveals that everything that Jacob says and does just before he dies, that's what we're going to read about in all that follows. And in the last major section of the whole book of Genesis, starting back in chapter 37, we learn of the work of God in bringing Jacob's son Joseph to power in Egypt. And then we learn of God's work in bringing Jacob and all of the rest of his family to dwell in Egypt. And there's been much defilement and dysfunction in Jacob's family leading up to this time. But now Jacob and his 12 sons and all of their families are reunited, they're reconciled, and they're relocated from Canaan to Egypt. And so now starting in verse 29 of chapter 47, with Jacob about to die, We're going to learn more about the purposes and the work of God in this family. And in so doing, as I mentioned, we're going to learn about the nature of God's blessings. And everything that we're going to see has to do with God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners. And as we get into this, I want to ask the question, what comes to your mind when you think of blessing? What comes to your mind when you think of blessings? What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to experience blessings? Words about blessings, of course, are a part of our regular vocabulary. We say things or hear things like, God bless you, or have a blessed day, or God bless America, and the like. And oftentimes when we experience nice, desirable, wonderful things like good food or an enjoyable event, we might say or we might hear other people say things like, it doesn't get any better than this. Or things like, oh, I've died and gone to heaven. 
Now, when we say things like that, we're revealing language that carries the ideas of blessing and what we think blessing is. And so it's normal in some ways for us to think of blessing in terms of material, experiential kinds of things. Sometimes that's connected with finances or other types of provisions. Often our ideas of blessings might include things like health or abilities or good and pleasant experiences or we think of blessings in terms of other people, family and friends that we love and that we treasure. But certainly all of these things can be aspects of God's blessings, but they're not the full picture. And I know for myself, and I think for most of us, we tend to have a pretty small, shallow, and generally earthbound vision of blessings, ideas about what blessings are. Well, God's lavish blessings, again, are central not only to our passage today, but really to the entire story of Scripture. Certainly the entire book of Genesis, but as that connects with all of Scripture. And we've seen as we've gone through Genesis that it's the book of beginnings. It's the book of the beginnings of God's promise plan to bless undeserving sinners with salvation. Now, if you've not been with us before, or maybe if you haven't been with us for a while, it was a few years ago, actually about three years ago this time, that I started preaching through the book of Genesis. And from then until now, we've covered a lot of ground. We've also had a number of breaks here and there for various reasons and different things that we've looked at in God's Word. But we're nearing the end of this book, just a couple of more weeks probably after today. But the whole book is about this beginning, the beginnings of God's promise plan to bless undeserving sinners with salvation. And the unfolding then of this promise plan for blessing is the storyline of Scripture. And it culminates, of course, in the person and in the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And our text today is going to help us see this even more fully. So here's how I want to proceed as we get into things today with two different focuses as we move into chapters 47, 48, and 49. First of all, I want to just survey what's going on with Jacob and his offspring as he's about to die and as he blesses his offspring. And then after we do that, after surveying what's going on there, I want to sort of zoom out to the whole of Scripture and take just a little bit of time to trace the theme of God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners through the whole of Scripture. And we'll just uh, cross the high points, as it were, as we do that. But that's what I want to do. First survey the passage before us, and then survey the whole of Scripture to see more about this focused, central theme of God's blessings in Christ. And then uh, we'll conclude with thinking a little bit about what all this means for you and for me. And with all that we're going to see here, let me just give you what really the big idea, the main point of everything that we're going to see, it's somewhat embedded in the title of the sermon, but I'll draw it out just a little bit and say it this way. Here's the big thought, the big truth. God lavishly blesses ruined sinners with life in his presence through Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's a mouthful. Let me say it again. God lavishly blesses ruined sinners with life in his presence through Jesus Christ. And as we move through things, hopefully we'll see this ever more fully and be strengthened in faith for those who have already come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and perhaps be provoked and be drawn to faith if you've never turned from your sins to find true life in the Lord Jesus Christ. God lavishly blesses ruined sinners with life in his presence through Jesus Christ. So keep this in mind as we move along through things. So first of all, the first focus to just survey what's going on with Jacob and his offspring here at the end of chapter 47 through chapter 48 and 49. 
Well, the structure of everything that's going on here is very simple to understand. And I can summarize the structure with three words, burial, blessings, and burial. That's what's going on. At the end of chapter 47, Jacob is thinking about and securing promises from his son Joseph regarding his burial. And then in chapter 48 and through most of chapter 49, he's blessing his offspring. And then at the end of chapter 49, he's again thinking about his burial. And he's commanding all of his sons to be sure and take him back to Canaan, the promised land, to be buried there. So in terms of structure, that's how it unfolds. Burial, then blessings, and then burial. And in all of this, what Jacob is doing now at the end of his life, as he knows he's about to die, what he's doing is he is savoring and he is sharing God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners. In all that he communicates to his sons, he is both savoring in his own soul and then sharing with them God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners. So let's see this as we get into the text and move along. And I'm not going to read the entirety of this whole uh, portion, but I'm going to read some parts and summarize some other parts. And let me start with verse 29 of chapter 47, and we'll read into chapter 48. So there, verse 29, When the time drew near that Israel must die, He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he, Joseph, answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. It could also be understood that he bowed himself on his staff and presumably in an act of worship to the Lord. And so then the beginning of chapter 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength, and he sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession." And let me stop there. So as Jacob knows that he's dying, he first secures Joseph's promise to bury him with his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, in the promised land. And then shortly after, uh, Joseph brings his sons Manasseh and Ephraim to Jacob, and we're told that Jacob sits up in bed, and he tells Joseph how God had appeared to him and blessed him many years earlier, telling of God's promises to make him fruitful with multiplied offspring and to give the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And at the very outset, what Jacob is doing on his deathbed is he's rehearsing and savoring the promises and the blessings of God in his life. And this is prominent at the very outset of this whole episode of him blessing his sons. He's he's mindful of these things. He's savoring them. He's rehearsing them in his mind. And so this sets the focus of everything that is going to follow. Well, then in verses 5 through 14, Jacob prepares to bless Joseph by blessing his two sons, whom Jacob essentially adopts as his own. And so he has Joseph bring the boys near to him, and then Jacob unexpectedly blesses Ephraim as the firstborn, even though he was the secondborn. And so then we read in verses 15 to 22 of Joseph blessing these boys. So we read verse 15, he blessed Joseph, 
And notice he's blessing Joseph by blessing his sons. He blessed Joseph and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so notice here how Jacob is both savoring and sharing God's blessings. And he's mindful of God's faithfulness to his fathers and he speaks of God as his shepherd and as his redeemer. And the same promised blessings then that Jacob had received from God through Isaac, through Jacob, and direct, or through Abraham, and through his father Isaac, and then directly from God himself, with these same blessings, same blessings, he's now passing them on to Joseph through his sons. And then despite Joseph's protests, as we find in verses 17 to 19, Jacob blesses Ephraim the youngest as the firstborn, making him greater than his older brother Manasseh. Well then verses 20 to 22 summarize this scene, and let me read that in verse 20. So we read that he blessed them that day by saying, or saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And he's making reference there to a special gift of land that he is also giving to Joseph. That's the only place in Genesis that's mentioned. We don't know any else about, anything else about the dynamics of, of, of what Jacob did in acquiring that land. But he's given an extra portion to Joseph. And so in this, again, what we see is Jacob savoring God's promised blessings and then sharing them with Joseph through his sons. And he promises that Ephraim's offspring in particular, as the one whom he blessed as the firstborn, will become a multitude of nations. And we're going to see the significance of that in just a little bit. Well, immediately after blessing Joseph's sons, Jacob then will do the same with his own sons. And so we read in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 49 that then Jacob called his sons and he said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. So we can picture the scene again. He has gathered them all around him on his deathbed. And strictly speaking, Jacob is about to give prophecies or predictions for all of his sons, which involve blessings for some, but not all of them. And I'm not going to take time to read what he says to every one of his sons, but Jacob's prophecies about each son moves from the oldest son to the youngest, with one exception a little bit down the line. And he says things of each son that reflect their past character as well as their future history. And what we find within all of this, what is of greatest significance, is that the longest and the most significant blessings are given to Judah and to Joseph. And we'll look at those in just a moment. And the reason for this, the reason these longest and most detailed blessings are given to Judah and to Joseph is because the tribes that will come from Judah and Joseph will become prominent in the leadership and the history of Israel as it continues to unfold and prominent ultimately then in leading to Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, in the narrative of Genesis, in the stories about Joseph's sons that really begin, or I'm sorry, about Jacob's sons that really begin in earnest in chapter 37, all of the things that transpire from chapter 37 through the end of the book have a lot of focus upon not only Joseph, but Judah as well. 
And so we're not surprised to find that they're most prominent even as Jacob is pronouncing these prophecies and blessings upon them in chapter 49. And so speaking negatively in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 47, uh, everything that Jacob says about Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi is more negative. It doesn't really involve blessing as much as, as tragic things related to their past lives and future history. But then in verses 8 to 12, he comes to Judah. He comes to Judah. And just before I read that, I think we, if, if uh, Sam, maybe some air circulating just a little bit might be good. I know I'm moving around and all of that, but I'm seeing others swoon as well. So just to get a little air moving. Well, let's hear what he says to Judah in verses 8 to 12 of chapter 49. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. He says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And then verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of significance to that symbolism in what Judah says here. Or I'm sorry, what Jacob says here regarding Judah. But without getting into all of the details, what Jacob is prophesying is that Judah, from Judah, is going to come a royal dynasty, an everlasting kingdom. And you notice there, he says in verse 10 that the scepter and the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah's offspring. Well, a scepter and a, and, a, and a ruler's staff are symbols of kingship. They're symbols of authority. And then verse 10 also says that tribute and the obedience of the peoples will come to this king and to his, in his kingdom. And then what he goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, all that he's saying there really gives images of abundance and fertility and health. That's what is behind a lot of the word pictures going on there, abundance and fertility and health. And what all of this is very vividly speaking of is God's blessings through the everlasting kingdom of Judah's offsprings of his offspring. And as we're going to see shortly, as this develops through scripture, this all focuses on and culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then in verses 13 through 21 of chapter 49, we have more prophecies about more sons. Some of them are negative, some are positive. But then we come in verse 22 to what Jacob has to say about Joseph. Now, in a sense, he's already blessed Joseph in blessing his sons, but now he declares even more blessing upon Joseph. And so look at verse 22 through verse 26. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, the almighty, who will bless you. Now, by the way, as he's speaking of the archers bitterly bitterly attacking him and shooting at him, he's talking about Joseph's brothers who years earlier had so hated him, they had thought about murdering him, and at the last minute, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And so Jacob had come to learn about how that had all unfolded. He's reflecting upon that, but how God had made him agile and provided for him. 
And so he says there in verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you. And then listen to how overflowingly he speaks of this. He'll bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Now again, do you see and do you hear how Jacob is both savoring and sharing God's blessings? And he's really beside himself with joy in God and with blessing for Joseph in view of how God had already blessed and preserved Joseph as the means by which God blessed and preserved Jacob and his family. And Jacob also knows that with God preserving his family, he was also preserving and advancing his promised plan for blessing. So on his deathbed, Jacob is mindful of and he's savoring all of this. And so he speaks emphatically, he speaks profusely of God's blessings on Joseph which are ultimately God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners, even like himself, even like Jacob, who was a ruined sinner and who desperately needed God's lavish blessings. So here's this old, old, old man on his deathbed and yet savoring and sharing God's blessings. Well, Jacob then gives prophecy for his youngest son, Benjamin, in verse 27. And then we read this summary in verse 28 of all that he just did. So verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. And so again, Jacob's blessings were suitable to each son reflecting something of their past character and something of their future history yet to come from those who would come from their offspring. Well, then in verses 29 to 32, Jacob commands his sons to bury him in Canaan in the very cave that his grandfather Abraham had bought and where Abraham and his wife Sarah And then Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah, Jacob's parents, were also buried. And we also learn in that little portion that Jacob's wife Leah was also buried there. And Jacob's commitment then to being buried in Canaan, it's at the beginning and at the end of this entire section, his commitment to that reflects his confidence that God is going to yet fulfill his promises. For God's people to be in Canaan, to be in the land that God promised. And then the text ends with verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. Remember, he had been sitting up in order to do all of this, but he draws his feet into the bed now. He breathes his last, and he was gathered to his people which is a rich and a beautiful phrase that speaks of his death and it speaks of the reality of the afterlife for those who belong to God in glory with God, with his people. And so this is what we see in this entire section of Jacob blessing his sons. As he dies, he savors and he shares God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners. And what's striking in all of this is how undeserving both Jacob and all of his sons are of any of these blessings from God. If you know anything at all about the story of this family, almost the 150 year history by the time that Jacob dies, as it goes all the way back to his birth in Genesis chapter 25, It is a, in many ways, a tragic story of a highly dysfunctional family with highly ruined sinners, including Jacob himself. In all that we see, in all of the things that go on in this family, and I've alluded to just a little bit of it already, but we see a family history that is filled 
with pride and with selfishness and with greed and exploitation and favoritism and deception and manipulation and control and unbelief and jealousy and hatred and cruelty and immorality and incest and violence and rage and murder. And that's just the beginning of the list of things we could identify. It's, it's massive how dark it is. But it's also filled with God's lavish blessings in spite of the ruin of sin. And that's what God intends us to see in this entire story. And so we've seen that though Joseph's brothers sinfully sold him into slavery in Egypt, God was working in all of that in mysterious ways to ultimately bless and provide for Joseph and use him to bless and provide for the whole family. And so now, as Jacob dies, he's savoring God's rich blessings for ruined sinners like himself. He's sharing those blessings with his sons. And as I've mentioned, all of this then connects with the entire storyline of Scripture, God's promise plan to bless undeserving sinners with salvation. And so let me take just a few moments. We're, we're just going to survey a bit of this to trace how this theme of God's blessings, His lavish blessings, how it unfolds uh, throughout Scripture and culminates in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And undergirding all of this should be the question for every single one of us, am I living within God's rich and lavish blessings in the Lord Jesus? Or am I alienated from Him? Am I separated from Him? Am I ultimately living under His wrath and under His curse? And so let me take just a few moments to trace this. And, And I might say, as we begin to see things unfold at the very beginning of Genesis and moving on, it's sort of like watching a slow but beautiful, captivating sunrise. If you've ever done that and, and got up in the dark of the night before there's any light in the sky at all, maybe there's reflected light of the moon and of the stars, but otherwise it's just completely dark and you look towards the eastern sky to wait and to watch for the sunrise, you initially begin to see just the faintest hint of little light And then little by little, of course, what happens? It gets brighter and brighter and brighter, and eventually the sun comes up, such as we perceive it anyways. We know the realities of the rotations and all of that, but, but that's what we see. And really in Scripture, that's how God's lavish blessings in Christ begin to unfold. At the very beginning, we just see uh, darkness because of sin, but we see the faintest glimmers of light in God's promises. And those glimmers of light, as, as the narrative unfolds, get brighter and brighter and brighter as things move along. Now, I'm going to touch on just a number of passages, and I'm going to move through this fairly quickly. So if you're inclined to take notes at all, you might want to just write down references and look at these things later because I'm not going to take time to to spend a lot of time on each passage, but I just want you to see this in its full panoramic beauty in the blessings of God as they unfold in Scripture. So first of all, we start all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And this is not incidental. As we read of God's creative work in creating all that He created, we're told in verse 22 that God blessed them. Speaking of all uh, living creatures that He has just created that are spoken of in, in the passages prior to that, we read that God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. In God's very good, beautiful, harmonious creation, we see Him blessing living creatures so that they'll be fruitful and multiply. And then down in verse 28, after God creates man and woman in His image, we read much of the same thing. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see the pouring out. We see the overflow of God's blessing in creation. 
And then again in chapter 2, after God has ceased from his creative work and he, he rests, as it were, following his creative work, we read that on the seventh day he finished his work, he rested on the seventh day from all that he had done. And then verse 3 of chapter 2, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. His creation was very good. It was beautiful. It was perfect. It was harmonious. It was life-giving. It was multiplying. And God blessed the ceasing of his creative work because it was all very good. Well, of course, then in chapter 3, we know what happens. Following this paradise that God has created, sin enters in as the man and woman rebel against God's good and gracious command. And they rebel against his design and they do what God has said not to do. And so death enters in and darkness enters in and God's curse enters in. And yet even as God is pronouncing his curse, we see it specifically as he curses the wicked serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, Eve in particular, God promises in verse 15 that there will come an offspring from the woman who will eventually crush the offspring of the serpent. It's very faint. It's very hard to see, but there's a glimmer of a promise that will get brighter and brighter as we move along. Well, in the rest of Genesis from that point, the rest of chapter 3 through chapter 11, really everything that takes place is, is just dark and, and, and grim, and it's an incredibly sad picture. Death reigns and division reigns and defilement reigns. And there's all kinds of problems. That's where we read about God bringing a flood of judgment and yet saving Noah and his family. That's where we read about God dividing uh, the people into various nations because they were mounting a collective unified offensive to, to pursue idolatry rather than the true God. And so it's just darkness. It's the outworking of the curse. And yet then beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, God calls a man named Abram, who eventually names Abraham. And he promises him land, he promises him offspring, and he promises him that he'll bless him, and that he'll make him a blessing to all of the nations. And so this is where we see this matter of blessing coming front and center. It develops more fully through Abraham as we read in chapters following chapter 12. Then it develops more through Abraham's son Isaac as we read particularly in chapter 26. And then we read of it developing through Isaac's son Jacob. And this of course connects with where we're most directly looking towards the end of Genesis. And we see how Joseph is involved in this and how God continues to provide for the protection and for the advancement of his promise plan. And notice that God is the one taking the initiative in all of this. God is the one blessing people and providing salvation for those who would trust him of his own initiative and of his own purpose and of his own goodness. Well, as we get beyond the book of Genesis and we see these things continue to unfold, Remember that Jacob blessed Joseph's son Ephraim. Well, the tribe that came from Ephraim is the tribe that would ultimately produce a man named Joshua. And you may know that Joshua was the one that following Moses is the one who led the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, into the conquest of the promised land. More than 400 years after the events of the end of Genesis. But Ephraim is not ultimately the line of promise because in God's purposes and time, that eventually gets transferred to the line of Judah, which is the significance of the prophecies that Joseph, or I'm sorry, that Jacob makes about Judah back in Genesis chapter 49. And so just to mention a few places where we see this, it's interesting in the small but powerful little book of Ruth, and the story of Ruth, that book ends in chapter 4 with a genealogy of the generations of a man named Perez. Now Perez, we learn back in the book of Genesis, was one of the sons of, guess who? Judah. And guess who comes from the line of Perez, who comes from the line of Judah? None other than King David. And that's kind of the point of the whole book of Ruth to show us how uh, God is providing for uh, his purposes for King David to come. 
And so King David comes and he's from the line of Judah. And, and this is all now beginning to see greater fulfillment of what Jacob said of Judah back in chapter 49. Well, then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God establishes and, and sort of deepens his covenant with his purposes with David. And he promises him that he will establish the throne of his kingdom through David's offspring forever. And so we see this language of kingdom and authority and, and of the offspring of David accomplishing this. Well, so then it's with great significance as we come to the New Testament, and I'm bypassing all kinds of things, but hopefully again you're seeing a picture. As we come to the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, when an angel appears to Mary to tell her that she is going to give birth to the Son of God, listen to what the angel says, verse 31 of Luke chapter 1. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see in here how that very statement is directly, explicitly connecting with Jacob's prophecies concerning Judah back in Genesis 49, which of course connect with King David and all that God had purposed for him and for his offspring. And if you want to look there at some point in the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy that connects Jesus with David, with Abraham, and of course Judah is included in that as well. So the point to see in all of this is that these aren't just dry, dead, historical facts that God is revealing through his word. He's showing us how he is working to secure his lavish blessings upon ruined sinners and culminating in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then it's with great significance, and there's so much more we could say regarding Christ and Him coming to establish His kingdom. We see much reference to that throughout all of the Gospels. But in Acts chapter 3, following the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then His ascension back into heaven with the Father, and then the sending of the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers the apostles to proclaim Christ, as they proclaim Christ, they make reference to these very specific blessings. And so we find near the end of Acts chapter 3, what Peter says upon one such occasion in verses 25 and 26 to those to whom he is speaking, who are predominantly Jews. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, he goes all the way back to Abraham, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Why? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You hear the language of blessing. You see how this is tying into everything that starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. God's benevolent purpose to bless his people. And even as his people have fallen into sin and, and run into sin and rebelled against him, he yet works through Jesus Christ to bless ruined sinners with new life. Well, all of this continues to unfold and we see it in many other places in the New Testament. One such place is in Galatians chapter 3. We're coming down the home stretch here, okay? Hang, hang in with me. I know we're taking a deep dive. Don't worry, you're not going to suffocate. We'll come up for air again in just a moment. But Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And let me just read what Paul says here as he's, as he's unpacking and, and, and explaining the centrality of Christ in knowing the blessing of God through faith in Christ. He says in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's what's in contrast to blessing, of course, is God's curse. He says, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And then he says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, Paul is specifically and explicitly talking about the blessing of God promised to Abraham and that being passed on now in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who became the curse. He took on God's judgment. He took on the penalty for the sin of all who would trust him. He did what obedience to the law could never do because none of us could ever perfectly obey the law. He fulfilled it and he fulfilled the penalty for breaking the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in him, as Paul says in verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, might come to the entire world, might come to the nations. And you see, that's what's behind the passage that Zach read earlier from Ephesians chapter 1. God has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners. That's what we see exemplified in the life of Jacob and his family. That's what the hope is, beloved, for everyone who turns to Christ in faith. Regardless of your sin, regardless of what the consequences of your sin have brought in your own life and in the lives of others, and some of those consequences that that you may not be able to be fully removed from on this earth, There is yet hope, there is forgiveness, there is cleansing. And all of the hope that we have in all of the riches of God's lavish blessings in Christ point us into eternity, which is what the book of Revelation is all about. Because there we see the risen and exalted Jesus coming again and with Him establishing the new heavens and the new earth in which the fullness of God's blessings will be fully experientially known, not by faith, but by sight in His presence for all eternity. And that's why Jesus in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, is referred to as the lion from the tribe of Judah. The very lion that Jacob spoke of regarding Judah back in Genesis chapter 49. That's why Jesus is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as he comes to establish his kingdom. And then just listen about the nature of this kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth as we see it at the very end, near the very end of Revelation in chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And it's a vision, beloved, of the reality of eternity in God's presence through Jesus Christ. The absence of the curse, the absence of of death, and the fullness of blessing in the very presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, this entire story and the entire hope of the gospel, the entire reality of God's lavish blessings for ruined sinners could could be summarized this way, as I read recently in a recent children's book. Some of the best reading is there, if it's a solid children's book. And this is a very gospel-centered child's book. But it says simply this. Here's the story of Scripture. God made it. People ruined it. God rescued it, and God will finish it. That's the story of Scripture. That's the blessing, the lavish blessing of God for ruined sinners. He made it, we ruined it, He rescues it, and He will finish it. So, beloved, God lavishly blesses ruined sinners with life in His presence 
through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be blessed by God. To the experience the fullness of life in His presence, which we know now by faith. And this blessing involves all of His covenant promises. It involves His kingdom. And it involves the restoration of of the beautiful, harmonious life in His presence that He had designed in the garden, which man rebelled against and was separated from. But now we live by faith in the anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth, the new garden, if you will, in which we'll dwell with Him And so we see that God's blessings have both spiritual and physical dimensions and ultimately bound up within the relational reality of Him being our God and we being His people. And again, we share this life now by faith even as we look to its consummation. And so again, I would ask the question, do you, as a ruined sinner, every single one of us is a ruined sinner, by our own sin, most fundamentally, as well as being impacted by the sins of others. But do you know God's lavish blessings in Jesus Christ? And are you striving by faith, God helping you to walk in those blessings, to live in those blessings, and to trust Him and to obey Him and to follow Him, to savor all of those blessings and to share them with others? that others might come to know those blessings as well. One of the hymns we often sing says it well, Man of sorrows, what a name! For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, O God, for the riches for the fullness for the wonder of all of your blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ and even to look at your dealings with this man named Jacob with all of his sons with all of your work with all of the things that you've been pleased to reveal there in those pages of Genesis we marvel at the lavishness of your blessings for ruined undeserving sinners like them but then we marvel all the more at the lavishness of your blessings for undeserving ruined sinners like us father i pray that each one here would know the riches of your blessings in fullest measure and live contentedly within your blessings living as those who receive the riches and the goodness and the blessings of all that you give in christ rather than living as those through pride and rebellion who are striving to acquire our own sense of blessings. Father, may you pour out grace and mercy so that all would know those blessings in fullest measure. For, for those who are believers, that you would strengthen us. For those who aren't, that you would bring them to repentance and faith to know life as you intended it in union with you and in your presence through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. And amen.